Hey, Ashley. Hey, Emily. I'm Emily Chen Newton, the managing editor for Noise. I am Ashley Salem, reporter at Noise. Um, and just a heads up that Ashley and I are both sitting here with masks on in our office. I know it's a little echoey, mm-hmm. but you know, abiding by the protocols these days. <laughs> With the rise of the Delta variant of COVID-19 within our community of Omaha, Nebraska, we here at Noise felt that it was high time for a check-in, just to check in with our community about the updates, what we know about the vaccines, the variants, masking, all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So Ashley and I got to sit down with two heavy hitters in our medical community, and we're here to share those interviews with you. I spoke with Dr. Ali Khan. And I had the chance to talk to Dr. Dr. Jasmine Marcellin. She's actually an infectious disease physician at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. So she's actually, she's been on the ground this whole time actually treating COVID patients. So what were some of the things that that y'all touched on? Yeah, well, we actually talked about a lot. Uh, We covered how COVID has impacted her personally. We talked about her reflections as a physician about vaccines and really about placing information in a way that makes sense to people that's not in the medical field. And we talked about what we all can do to keep each other safe. But before we got into those pieces, I actually got to know her as a person. I am originally from the Caribbean, born on the island of Dominica, uh, but I've been living in Omaha for the last four plus years or so, um, and really enjoying getting to know the community and getting out into the community, uh, very passionate about advocacy uh, for our community here in Omaha. Thank you so much, Dr. Marcel, and I'm so excited to talk to you today. Can you please tell me a little bit about how this experience with COVID um, has been for you as a woman of color and as a doctor? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been heavy for sure. I think if I had to have one word to describe what this whole experience has been like, heavy would be the word that I would use. Um, mm. You know, as a as a black woman physician, it really was it was troubling to me from the beginning of the pandemic when we started to see the disproportionate impact of COVID-19, the number of people being infected and dying from COVID-19 and how that was affecting minoritized communities like the black community, Hispanic community, and you know, Native American indigenous communities. And I, it's not like I didn't um, anticipate that we would see these disparities because this is what we find in almost every corner of healthcare. So these are things that I knew, but still, even anticipating that I would see inequities, I wasn't really prepared for how bad it was going to be. Um, Last year, there was something that was quoted in the Washington Post, I think it was, where one in three Black Americans could say that they knew someone who had died from COVID-19. And towards the middle of the spring or so, um, I became part of that statistic. And the pain, the the sadness of of losing a family member to COVID, um, just unimaginable, unbearable. 
Um, and so as a physician, seeing that people in the in general in, in this country not um, seeming like they weren't taking it as seriously as mm. as I would have liked that that was uh, it, it hurt more, I think, um, with having that personal impact. And then I started to hear that, well, folks were just saying the Black community is, they just don't want to do the things that need to be done. Or, um, And I had to take a step back and think, well, where is that coming from? Because everybody that I talk to are really concerned about this pandemic and they want to know how to keep their family safe. And yes, there's people with a lot of questions, um, but it was disappointing to me to hear a lot of um, a lot of folks kind of just brush off the questions and and label people as vaccine hesitant and and not actually explore. Um, so when we got vaccines, we were seeing similar to what we saw in the beginning. We're now seeing some, uh, these inequities in vaccination across the black and brown communities with that same sort of dismissal of these communities as though they're, they're just never going to get it done when the issue was access, when people couldn't afford to leave their jobs to go get their vaccines, when people couldn't have, they couldn't afford to take the time off work to quarantine or isolate. And those things were not really being addressed. Um, and that contributed to the sadness, to the heaviness. So I was determined to play some kind of role in um, helping to increase access to vaccines to our community in North Omaha um, and also increase access to information, answer questions as many times and as often as I needed to, to help folks get the stuff that they needed to be safe. Um, I have also lost um, some friends uh, during this time, and it is it is frustrating. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about the layers to what you mentioned about when someone maybe just categorize someone, um, a whole group of people, excuse me, as just being hesitant. Um, you mentioned the different barriers of access. Some people just can't get off their jobs. Who's going to watch their kids? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these vaccination lines were super long. Mm -hmm. So not only taking the time off to go, but to maybe you can't do that in 30 minutes. Right. You yeah, know, yeah. even if you say, oh, I'm just going to use my lunch break. What if you, unless your employer is going to let you pull your lunch breaks towards the end of the week, you know what I mean? So yeah. just want to see if you could maybe speak a little bit to that and explore that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. You, you hit the nail on the head. There are just so many, so many layers, so many ways that access can be um, affected, including the ones that you mentioned. Um, and some of the other things that I have seen and, and noticed as I've been talking to folks is, um, having just kind of access to medical information that 
um, people can understand. And, you know, we in the healthcare world, we, we like to do a lot of talking and um, pontificating on like all of the intricate details of this vaccine and this virus and airborne versus droplets and all of these things that we don't recognize, in my opinion, we haven't done enough as a scientific community to be able to communicate what we're like, what's the meat of what we're trying to say to the general community, general public, in a way that they can understand what the takeaway is. Um, so for example, earlier on in the pandemic, we were having so many conversations about how COVID was, uh, how the virus causing COVID was transmitted. and rather than focusing on what are the ways that people can understand how they could protect themselves properly, we were focusing on, is it airborne or is it droplet? And the there's definitely scientific reasons why we would want to know, is it airborne or is it droplet? But at the end of the day, if the recommendation to the public is going to be wear a mask, then how do we make sure that 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 message is being communicated in a way that is not confusing to people uh, and that they understand what the rationale is for the differences, um, differences in, in recommendations um, without all of the back and forth, right? And yeah. I think that's something that we've been learning. It's definitely better now compared with early in the pandemic. But one of the things that I really opened my eyes to was how important scientific communication is to the public. And if it's not done correctly, then that presents its own access barrier. Because then if we focus on some of the intricate details, minutia, only people who have, you know, done XYZ amount of um, studies, education, training will be able to access that information. Whereas it, what it really needs to be done is broken down and funneled into ways that people can understand. So when I talk to people about how the vaccines work, I usually talk about how I talk about it in terms of real analogies that make sense to people. And so it's the way that we're saying it, but then also it's the, how are we getting it to folks? Absolutely. And making sure that things are in people's languages um, one of the things that I noticed early on in the pandemic was all of the stuff that we were doing for COVID was in English. I said, that's all well and good, but mm -hmm. there is a good chunk of our population that doesn't speak English. So what are we doing for our Spanish speaking, our Karen speaking, Kareni speaking patients um, or individuals in the community? How can we reach them if we're not actually trying to get into their language? And so now there's a lot more and that's helpful because now people are understanding what it is that you're saying to them in, in their terms. We yes. have more of that. Absolutely. There's so much I could, uh, we could talk more about that piece, that little piece specifically. Yeah. Um, I do want to move on to a question about, so now we have a vaccine that has been FDA approved. Yeah. Do you think that is um, going to change some of the relationships that for those people that maybe identify as hesitant or do you think, what, what do you think that piece of information um, is going to do or not do? 
I think it's helpful. There's uh, there's a good chunk of the folks who have not been vaccinated yet who are not against vaccines at all, um, but wanted to have an extra layer of assurance that you know whatever it is that they're putting in their body is FDA approved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when when you talk to folks like that. Um, about vaccination during the EUA phase, um, the emergency use authorization phase, you you hear a lot of reasonable um, discussions, um, not not a lot of pushback, but simply, I just wanna wait until it's approved. Mm -hmm. I think those folks will be lining up to get their vaccines now that it's approved, particularly since we are also seeing this approval coming at a time when uh, we have a lot of transmission in the community because of the Delta variant. So I think that is really helpful. There is still going to be a group of individuals for whom the approval of one of these vaccines may not be enough to really tip them over the scale. And for for those people, it really, it becomes important to have conversations that are really personalized, that ask curious questions about what what an individual's um, concerns might be and what questions that they may have about the vaccine. Some of their questions relate to just uncertainty. Um, they are not, they're not um, sure of, you know, this timeline of developing the vaccine. Explain that more to me because I don't understand why it has taken this amount mm-hmm. of time when in my mind it should take longer. And so mm-hmm. that's a separate conversation um, than say a person who has heard a myth about um, you know the the ingredients and components of the vaccine and what that could ha- actually happen to you. And so going going into those conversations with a really open mind and asking, starting from a place of curiosity rather than making an assumption about what a person's concerns might be is really helpful in those stages. There are people who are who have fixed beliefs, and no matter what it is that you say to them, they are not going to change their minds about the vaccine. And I think it is still important to have conversations with people who have fixed beliefs like that. And how I pivot that conversation, if it's very clear that they have no intention of getting vaccinated, and I start talking to them about how else can you keep yourself safe, mm-hmm. right? What are some of the other things that you can do to keep yourself and the people around you? Are you wearing a mask? Are you avoiding crowds? Are you, you know, continuing to keep your distance? And if the answer to any of these things are no, then let's explore that a little bit because I'm not going to, my job is not going to um, sit here to force you to be vaccinated. I, but I would like to make sure that you're safe because I care. And that all yeah. of it always comes from a position of love and 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 caring. And, you know, our community is really, has been hit really hard by COVID. And um, it, it, there's a collective hurt, you know, when you, when you look at those numbers and you see the number of people who have died, there's a collective hurt. And my my ultimate goal has always been 
what can I do to advocate for my community? What can I do to help? And even if a conversation that I have with someone today about vaccines does not result in them getting a vaccine, but they walk away from that feeling like at least they know a little bit more about Mm -hmm. the vaccines or they understand a little bit better how they can keep themselves safe then I'm I'm okay with that. I want people to understand that the way that we get through this pandemic, it's been it's been a long I don't even know how many months now. I keep saying 18 months, but I feel like it's longer than that. Maybe closer, closing on 20, I don't know. Yeah, something like that, um, right? <laughs> and it's been so it's been a long time, but we have a number of different tools in our toolbox. So vaccines are one one tool in that box. Masks are another tool. Remembering that a good chunk of our population is we you know we talk a lot about people who are unvaccinated and we don't we, we don't spend enough time talking about what group of that what um, proportion of that group actually just is ineligible to be vaccinated. So all of the kids 12 and under who just cannot be vaccinated yet. How do we protect them? Yes. Right. How, how do we protect the people in our community um, whose immune systems for some reason or another means that even despite having gotten COVID themselves or um, uh, being vaccinated, their immune system doesn't provide the protection. And so they're still at risk. How do we protect these people? And we really have to move from a, the individualistic approach that we have to um, these types of public health emergencies and, and think about the community. Um, because you can do you can do certain things for yourself, but if you're only thinking about yourself and not about the community, what happens when you actually have to interface with the community? Um, and I would just want people to remember that of all of the tools that we have, we have vaccines, we have masks, we have um, avoiding distant, avoiding crowds and, and keeping your distance. These are all different tools in our toolbox. Vaccines will help us. They are a very powerful tool, but we still need to do the others as well while we're getting through this. And it's just important for all of us to really think about each other um, as much as sometimes even more than we think about our own selves. To think about others even more, how we think about ourselves sometimes and doing what we can. Yeah. I think that, I think that's it. I think that's it. It was a really special interview, Uh, you know, connecting over Zoom, I was able to get to know her as a person and that was really special to me. So I assumed knowing knowing you, I'm sure y'all ended up talking a little bit about the self-care that she's had to do working in this field in the past year and a half. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So after you spoke with Dr. Marcellin, I spoke with Dr. Ali Khan. He's again, the Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Oh, what were some of the things you guys talked about? So we talked about boosters. That's a big thing right now. Mm -hmm. We talked about boosters being available for folks who've gotten the Pfizer and Moderna shots. That starts September 20th. 
uh, we talked a lot about some of the adverse health events that people have experienced after being vaccinated and how those are being looked into, really what to make of some of those experiences and symptoms. Um, of course, we talked about the Delta variant and the way that our vaccines seem to be holding up. We, we also spoke on whether or not HIPAA can be used to restrict the use of COVID dashboards. Now, his opinion is no. That is because public health information uh, is exempt from HIPAA. So that was one kind of the big things that we cleared up in this conversation. But really, we just started, honestly, by talking about the basic differences between the main vaccines that are out there, because those basic differences are now coloring what we are all experiencing right now with some of the confusion around, I got Moderna, I got Pfizer, I got J Johnson & Johnson, what am I supposed to do? So we started by clearing up some of those differences. So um, there's a number of different vaccine technologies to make vaccines. So the mRNA vaccines, which are the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, and Pfizer vaccine just got approved, fully approved, so no longer just emergency authorization. Those vaccines uh, use a very small molecule to go into your body, and your body then produces all the right proteins that you're gonna get an immune response against. So that's how those vaccines work. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine works in a very different way again with the same purpose of improving Im immune response. So that vaccine actually uses uh, a live virus that's uh, uh, very weakened to help your body then make the right type of protein. So it's just two different technologies to help you make an immune response. Okay. And so then talk a little bit about how we are now seeing that playing out when we are seeing approvals or suggestions that some people should be getting these boosters, and we're hearing that from Moderna and Pfizer, but we're not hearing that so much for J&J. &J. So how, does, how do the differences between these vaccines sure. play out in what we're seeing now? So what CDC and the FDA and the manufacturers have been doing is monitoring their data to say, when does it look like that these vaccines aren't as effective as they have been? And we know that's true for all vaccines, right? Over time, your immunity starts to fall off. And also over time, unlike other diseases, in this case, with the COVID, it starts having new variants, which are sort of types of the same type of virus. And this, these variants... Uh, are more difficult for the original vaccine to help protect you against. And so the best data has come in so far for the mRNA vaccines because there, there's more mRNA vaccine that was used. So it was just more widely it used. It was more widely vaccine. used, so there's more data. And in, right? in, in, in Israel too, right? A and lot of our... All of Israel, Israel used Pfizer. Okay. So the whole country used Pfizer. So because there's more data, it was earlier for CDC to say that at eight months... If you have gotten uh, vaccinated with one of these mRNA vaccines, we suggest that you get your third dose. So starting at eight months, next month and September 20th, people will be able to get their third dose. The expectation is that over the next couple of weeks uh, or months, CDC will also be able to say the same thing about the J&J &J vaccine. So is it correct then to think that part of the reason that we haven't seen these recommendations for boosters for Johnson & Johnson yet is because there was just there were less numbers available for them to sort through. 
Absolutely. Okay. Uh, much fewer people chose to get the Johnson mm-hmm. & Johnson uh, vaccine, so it's going to take a longer time to collect the data to, to let those recommendations change. But my expectation is that there definitely will be a recommendation for people who had Johnson & Johnson vaccine to get a second dose. And there's already trials currently that Johnson & Johnson is doing with two doses. Mm-hmm. So as that data comes in, we will get a recommendation to vaccinate people again. Okay. And then there, there was that scare with a very small number of women getting those very rare blood clots with Johnson & Johnson. Do you know if that has changed the recommendation at all or should we expect that to be changed of like who gets J&J? Should certain people avoid it or do you think it was really such a small number that it's it's not something to worry about? So, um, correct, there's a small number of people who get these clotting abnormalities Mm -hmm. uh, with the J&J vaccine and with the same type of vaccine in Europe, the Oxford vaccine that's used. So we know it's across these vaccines that they get this small complication. When CDC reviewed it, they were quite clear that the benefits of vaccination greatly outweighed the risk of vaccination. Um, And so they did not change their recommendation about getting people vaccinated. However, because they put a pause on the vaccine, many people just never went back to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Right, and And again, that's that's why we've had less data about it, why we don't have the booster recommendations yet. Because people just never went back to the vaccine. Uh, So we'll have to see as CDC gets more data what their decision is about J&J. And when we see any adverse events, it does seem it's it's at the same level or below what people might have these adverse effects or these other symptoms in the general population, right? So like with the blood clots, they were showing up, but it was below the rate that we saw in the general population. In the general population, correct. Mm -hmm. So there's, uh, and some some of this is because each and every adverse event is identified. I mean, so when you're looking at everybody for everything, even the super rare things are identified. And I am all for the approach that the FDA in the United States has done is to say, okay, these look like they're above our threshold for concern and we need to let people know. So there's complete transparency on any of these vaccine side effects. Mm -hmm. You know, I had this conversation today about measles vaccine. There's more data published on the COVID vaccine than on any other vaccine in the history of mankind. It's just, there's tons of data on how safe these vaccines are. And for this vaccine, the U.S. government actually added a brand new monitoring system for adverse events. So now everybody who's vaccinated, there's an app that they get added to. And then every couple of weeks they ask you, have you had any adverse events? How do you feel? And, you know, I'm six months out from vaccination. And a couple of days ago, I got another notification asking me again to fill out a little survey. How do I feel six months later? So and this is in addition to the routine mechanisms we have for monitoring vaccine adverse events. So these, clearly these vaccines have been more studied than any other vaccine and I can unequivocally tell you that they are safe. So talking about you, you mentioned earlier a little bit about as we see these variants develop, that's when the vaccines can sometimes have difficulty standing up to them. Absolutely. And we've seen this happen with the Delta variant. So the good news with the vaccines is they really protect you against, still protect you against severe disease. So that's the hospitalization and death. That's good. We don't like people to get hospitalized. We don't like people to die. But there's no doubt that the risk of getting an infect, just a regular infection is higher with the Delta variant than it was previously with the Alpha variant or the original original virus. So the risk of getting infected is higher 
fortunately, the risk of the severe uh, conditions of getting hospitalized and dying, those are you're still well protected against those. And can you talk a little bit about just that process of how variants are able to develop within oh, yeah, sure. a, 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 sure. a virus? Sure, absolutely. So um, viruses um, have to copy themselves every time to create more viruses. And when they copy themselves, they don't always get a true copy. And so this is just the messiness of trying to copy themselves. And sometimes they delete pieces of themselves, they add new pieces. And in that process, uh, most of those are useless, but sometimes you find something that's a little bit better and at being transmitted from person to person to person. And then that mutation retains. And when are those opportunities when do those opportunities occur for it to copy itself? So it, the virus copies itself every time it infects somebody. Okay. So the more people it infects, the more opportunities it has to mutate and become something different. And so even though this virus uh, usually is not known for mutating very fast, when you have hundreds of millions of people infected, that gives you lots of people to practice it and to develop these mutations. So then can you draw the connection for us then between the virus having opportunity to copy itself by hopping to new people to be infe to infect and the low vaccination rates in certain parts of the country or the state? So we have seen these um, new mutations almost invariably, they've come out of communities that have had lots of disease. So the more disease you have, the more likely you are to have a successful mutation that spreads well. So the Delta mutation, for example, we used to call it the Indian mutation because that's, you know, India was having hundreds of millions of cases and that provided the opportunity for a new variant to spread. And then that variant spread worldwide, which is where our variant came from. So anything that you can do to prevent yourself from getting infected it also decreases the chance of new variants developing because new variants need people to develop in and one of the main ways to keep yourself from getting infected is to get vaccinated so if you don't have high vaccination rates you're more likely to have variants because you're more likely to have cases but there's other ways to protect yourself masking social distancing etc and and so it's important to say that it like you you mentioned a little bit earlier getting the vaccine doesn't 100% protect you from getting the the virus, especially now with the Delta variant, it'll seems like it'll still pre pretty much hold up to you getting hospitalized. Severe disease, but it could still you could still get infected with the with having the vaccine. Absolutely, you could still get infected with having the vaccine, especially with the Delta variant. Although you're less still well protected against the severe conditions, which is why CDC changed all of its recommendations and said now that even if you were vaccinated, given so much disease in the community, they wanted to you to wear your mask again when you were indoors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, which is, I've heard it referred to as like the Swiss cheese approach of, yes. of protecting yourself. You put these different layers of protection and chances are the hole in each layer of cheese is not going to line up one on top of the other and create that opening. You'll probably be covered. Correct. So mm -hmm. that's the just layer multiple levels of protection to make sure that you don't get infected. And nowadays, you know, it's not just us getting infected, right? So remember when we tell people to wear a mask, it's for two purposes. The main purpose is to keep you from infecting others because you may actually feel fine and you may still be spewing out virus. So that's source protection. And then obviously it's to protect yourself from others. Uh, um, I 
you know, I often talk about protecting yourself and protecting your family. Nowadays, it's really about protecting our community. And the specific community that I worry a lot about is kids going to school. We have learned over the last horrific year that remote, you can't teach children remotely. It's just not as good, right? Um, especially the younger age groups. And we have seen a decline and a decrease in their education because of that. Uh, and uh, so we need to get kids back in school. Without a doubt, we need to get kids back in school. But the only way to get kids back in school is to do it safely. And the less, the you know, we talk about masks, which is very important, masks in school, et cetera, et cetera. But the best way to protect our children is no disease in the community, right? That is the absolute best way to protect our children. So if you care about the children in our, com in our community, get vaccinated uh, and please drive down disease within our community. And the vaccine is one of those tools in the toolbox that we have, probably the strongest. The strongest tool we have is our is the vaccine, and then obviously wear a mask while you're indoors. And you know we saw this; we had ten times fewer cases here in in Douglas County just you know six to eight weeks ago, right? So we can go back to there, right? We can go just do the right thing. Please go out there, get vaccinated, wear your mask, and protect our kids. And speaking of disease in the community, all the ways that we're making decisions these days is we used to be able to go and look at the data dashboard for the state, um, which now is not up there anymore. We do still have it within Douglas County, but there are certain counties that are more rural that they don't have their county dashboards anymore. Our state does not have a dashboard anymore. Um, I was wondering if you might be able to clear up some of why that is happening. And I know it may not be something that you can speak to, but we often hear it is because of HIPAA. And can you speak to that no, at all? It's not because of HIPAA at all. It's got nothing okay. to do with HIPAA. <laughs> and I should ask you to just explain that. What is HIPAA? So, so, so I'm sorry, for people who don't know uh, what HIPAA is, is your relationship with your doctor and, and sharing your medical information. HIPAA doesn't apply to public health information that's done in aggregate. So basically what that means, if I go to, you know, Downstreet Hospital, the physicians there can't say that Ali Khan visited us with his heart attack on June 5th and we gave him, you know, these three medications. They can't do that, which is a good thing. We like HIPAA, right? People shouldn't be allowed to do that. However, the health department clearly can say that in our county, we had 17 cases of COVID and this is what their age group is. They don't identify me individually. They don't identify anybody individually or their health conditions. They just give you the composite data. Um, and we need to do that all the time otherwise how do we take care of outbreaks in our communities if we don't know where they are if we're not sharing where they are with people right and so as long as you can't identify an individual from the information then HIPAA doesn't come into play right correct HIPAA okay. doesn't come into play and HIPAA again is for hospitals and healthcare settings uh, by law public health is, is exempt by HIPAA so I'll be very clear to everybody and I COVID is not a public health uh, issue anymore. COVID is a political issue in America. We know the science, right? The, we know how viruses transmit to other people. We know how to protect them, right? And we have every tool we need today to drive down COVID to zero. The decision around sharing data is not a public health decision. That's a political decision. If you look at the New York Times map 
for the U.S., Nebraska is the only one shaded out of everybody else. So somehow, you know, it's a Nebraska-specific decision. It's not a national decision. And we should be sharing more data with people to help them make better decisions. It's, the, it's when you don't share data with people that they get suspicious about why you're not sharing data with people. So we should be sharing as much data with people as possible. And so to be clear, if it were due to HIPAA, that we're not seeing this data in Nebraska, you would see that around the country, right? Because, oh, yeah. yeah, but it is, we don't see that. We only see it happening in Nebraska. So, you, so it's, a, it's a state choice. So the, the politicized environment. A couple of days ago, there was a group of people, I'm not exactly sure how many were out there, but near the medical center. Uh, oh, yeah, I was there. Oh, you were. Okay. Yes, so, I, went to go, I went to go see what people's concerns were for, about okay. vaccination. So can you speak just a little bit about... Uh, how this experience has been for you of having somebody in your position with your medical background and then hearing the politicized rhetoric and then sometimes like we saw a couple of days ago it coming so very close to just being I don't know I would assume blocks away from where you work yeah three blocks away but uh, so it's been amazingly saddening and disappointing that the United States public health system and our nation with all of the talent and resources we have could not get this disease under control and still has not gotten this disease under control. Whereas we have seen more successful responses globally, whether it's in, whether it's New Zealand, Taiwan, Singapore, China, Vietnam, Thailand, you know, they've all initially had much better responses than we did. And as, I've, as I have said, this is the reason we've not gotten disease under control is not because of public health issues. We have the tools. It truly is political issues of why this disease is not under control across uh, the United States. Um, and the same thing true for other comments about toxins and vaccines. We don't know about the safety of vaccine. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I know more about the safety of this vaccine than I know about the polio and the measles vaccine we've been putting in you for your whole life that you've done quite well, uh, well with. Uh, so there's a lot of misinformation out there. And it's unfortunate that this misinformation uh, is preventing people from getting vaccinated and protecting themselves and their family. And we're still seeing, you know, nowadays we have a thousand deaths a day, a thousand preventable deaths a day. That's 300,000 deaths a year in the U.S. that are completely preventable. That's half as many as we see from heart disease or cancer every year. And so it sort of gives you a sense of the frustration I have as a public health official when I see a number like a thousand people dying every day who didn't need to die. And I know you're not on, on the ground necessarily in the hospital. You're not treating COVID patients. But what do you hear from physicians and uh, those who are about what it's like now versus, you know, last year treating people? And, and they're still in it. Here we are this many months later. Uh, yes, correct. Uh, I, I'm more, more on the prevention side to try to make sure we keep people from getting infected. Um, but uh, what I hear from my healthcare colleagues and, and friends is, of course, they're heroes uh, for everything they do, but they're tired. <laughs> it's, been, it's been 18 months of this relentless, absolutely relentless assault on the healthcare system, right? Uh, and, and now I'm frustrated and angry because there's no reason for that person to be in the hospital, right? They could have just been vaccinated. <laughs> 
They wouldn't have been in the hospital, right? Except so, for the rare, except for the rare breakthrough case of, of cases. But this is this is percentage. this is this is really still for severe disease. It's a disease of the unvaccinated, right? So I think it just shows a disrespect to people who we think are essential and heroes in our lives to not get vaccinated because you know we're just putting more pressure on them in healthcare settings. Uh, like Dr. Marcellin, who Noe spoke with earlier. You know, she's yeah, she's she's still in it. Though they're they're mm-hmm. all still in it you know working working long hours uh, seeing their uh, ERs and hospital beds fill up again with a disease that they know they have a strategy for um, it's um, I feel I feel for them you know it's how long can they sort of keep this up uh, without sort of saying you know this is just not what we want to do and we've already seen challenges here with nurses respiratory therapists etc uh, of getting those individuals into hospitals is there anything else that you feel is not currently being said or, or talked about in the media that you would like for our listeners and audience to be aware of? So given that this is the North Omaha um, audience, I really think it's important for you to consider what disease looks like in your own community. We know that the rates of vaccination are much lower than they are amongst whites. I think it's 55 to 35 percent or something like that fully vaccinated. So please protect yourself. It's readily available across our community. So please protect yourself, protect your family and protect the ability for your kids to stay in school and get vaccinated. And I'm always glad at the College of Public Health to be a resource for anybody of questions that they may have or concerns they may have. And we will get through this. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. So really, in the spirit of getting through this together, we do have on our website, of course, noiseomaha.com. We have a list of COVID resources. Yes. It's listed on our website as the Community Response to COVID-19. That's the name of the page. And you'll find there CDC COVID facts in 15 different languages. We also have information about the eviction moratorium. We have links to various food pantries, government assistance to help with paying for utilities and whatnot. Yeah, and we also have um, things that help you with your mental and spiritual health. That's very important during this time to make sure that um, you can care for yourself in that way. And um, Dr. Marcellin, she actually has a YouTube series that she provided us that we have listed there as well, where she talks about um, all types of things that concern COVID. And she does a Q&A series, so she answers questions. And, and no question is silly. No question is looked down upon. Right. You know, whatever it is, she just will answer it straight up. Exactly. All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Stay safe. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you, Emily. <laughs>